0: Several years ago, I was preaching a series of messages at a church out in Arizona. Between the messages, I was hanging around the pastor and someone in the church that had asked a question concerning the theme of the conference. So the pastor answered it and went on and on and on, and I noticed he was giving away the message I was about to preach. And so I said, John, sh- Seal up the seven thunders. And he said, oh, yeah. And that lady looked at me like, do what to who? The seven thunders. What in the world is that? Would you know about the seven thunders? Well, it's in the center of the passage we're looking at this morning. So turn to Revelation chapter 10. And we'll learn a little bit about the seven thunders. Who, what, or whatever he, she, they are. This is a very mysterious chapter. And so in keeping with our study through Revelation, I'll explain some of it. I'm not going to make predictions on how this will be fulfilled, not too particularly. And then we'll concentrate on three spiritual and practical lessons at the end. Revelation 10.1 I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, glowed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Notice it says another mighty angel. Revelation is filled with angels, and they're all very mighty, very powerful. They are mighty, but not Almighty. God alone is almighty and is omnipotent and yet he has given a certain power to the angels far more than he has given to human beings. They are as big and more powerful than we are than we are to a little ant. There's an occasion in the Old Testament where one angel went out and in one night killed 185,000 people. That would be like us stomping on 185,000 ants in one night. Very powerful. God has given them power to work miracles, such as what we saw in the previous chapter, where all these angels were sent out to bring this worldwide plague that killed a third of the world population. They are powerful. Think of this also. They're healthy, they never get sick. They never get tired. They never sleep. They never need to recharge their batteries like a cell phone or fill up with gas like a car or recharge an electric car. They never get old. They never die. They are, as the verse says, mighty angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 says, they will come to earth when Jesus returns. Listen to what it says. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And they will be very active in this period of time called the Great Tribulation, that seven-year period leading up to the Second Coming. Meanwhile, they're active in history now, doing all sorts of mysterious things, but let's never forget, we and they are on the same side. These are the holy angels, and they do battle with the unholy angels like we do battle with unholy humans and unholy angels. But always remember, the good angels are on our side. They protect us. So here he says this other angel comes down, and he gives a description of them. Verse 2 says, he has a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, this little book is not like that scroll earlier that had the seven seals that Jesus is opening. It's a much smaller one, but the book and the scroll record God's predestination and predictions for the future. And as Jesus opens it, he reveals mysteriously what's going to happen in the future. And so that's probably the same thing like this, this little book that has a message about some soon coming events. And this mighty angel puts one foot on the land and one foot on the water. Kind of like that um, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, the Colossus of Rhodes, this huge statue. And what John is saying is this angel is greater than that statue. And he has power on sea and on land. What do you sound like? Verse 3, he cries out with a loud voice as when a lion wars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Verse 4, now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them down. Says that this angel cries out and sounds like a roaring lion. Why does a lion roar? The lion is the king of beasts, he's the king of the forest and he exerts that authority when he growls and roars with his thunderous growl to let all the animals in the jungle know who's king and they tremble and they don't mess with a roaring lion. The Bible often says that God roars like a lion. Last year we went through the book of Amos on Sunday nights and several times it says the Lord roars from Zion as if God from time to time lets us know who's king of the universe. He rules. When I look at this, I remember something that the great Jonathan Edwards said. He said that most people ignore God or they or they disobey him, everybody disobeys him, or they make fun of him. Why? Because they don't really think he's real, and they laugh at him like like he's in the realm of Santa Claus. And then Jonathan Edwards said, It's like they're seeing a picture of a lion. And they say it's just a picture, and they're not afraid of the picture. And then Edwards said, And then they meet the lion face to face. It's in the picture and he roars and they tremble. Not like when they see the picture. And Edwards said, people are not afraid of God now because he's just an imaginary being like a picture. But one day they will face him and they will smell his breath and they will tremble at his roar And it will be too late. God now whispers and speaks through nature. But people don't want to heed God. Even when lightning and thunder happen. Or they happen to read the Bible and they don't tremble at his word as it says in Isaiah. But one day, God will roar like this thunder and men and women will tremble. Notice then it mentions this, these seven thunders, verses 3 and 4. There's the seven thunders that I mentioned about preachers. These could be angels, but angels are simply bringing a message from God so the thunder gets back to God, not just the angels that are crying out like a lion. It's because they're echoing God who is the ultimate lion. So keep that in mind. It's the echo of God's thunder who is like a lion that's roaring and it's powerful. So similar imagery, thunder and roaring are powerful and they should strike fear in us. Now where does lightning and thunder come from? Well, it's a chemical reaction in the sky and I don't need to go into the detail, but when lightning strikes, it has extreme power and bright light and then the thunder will come. Now maybe you have learned that you can gauge how far the lightning is from how long does it take for the thunder to reach you after you see the lightning bolt. The lightning bolt may be very sudden and last for just a second, but start counting. One, two, three, and approximately for one second you can compute maybe one mile. If you want to make exact sure on that, talk to our science teacher, Kyle Klunick, and he'll tell you. But in other words, when lightning comes, it has power and light, and then after that comes the roar of the thunder. Now, if it's a long way away, let's say 10 or 15 miles away, you can see it, but it'll take seconds, and then it's just a little rumbling off in the distance. If it strikes very near you, that thunder is going to come almost instantaneously because uh, the, the, the sight of the, uh, the, the bright light comes to you quicker than the sound of the, uh, of the noise. But if it's real near, it'll be kaboom, just like that. Have you ever experienced that? Where it's a very bright light and you say, uh-oh, and then before you know it, kaboom. Very loud. I remember it happened to me at Bible college. It struck the water tower about 100 feet away from me and bright light and boom, and I fell, literally fell out of bed. Well, it's the idea that God uses revelation to reveal the light of his glory and his truth and his holiness and the power of his anger. God shows this in in nature. Whenever we hear thunder, we should think God's behind that. We'll look at that later in this message. But even more so with his word. I looked at up various places in the Bible where God sent thunder at just the right time. On Sunday nights, we've been looking at the lives of Samuel, Saul, and Solomon. And back in 1 Samuel 7, Israelites were at war uh, with the Philistines yet again. And God intervened to show that he was on the side of Israel, and he sent a massive thunderstorm. And it says, the thunder frightened Israel. And confused the Philistines, like, where did that come from? The God of Israel's is against us, and they all took off running, and Israel won the battle. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 12, here comes Samuel prophesying, and some of the people didn't fully believe in him, but they said, Yes, he's God's man, and he was about to issue a prophecy. But first, God says, I'm going to confirm that Samuel is my prophet. And so all the people were there and he says, I'm going to send thunder. And just moments later, kaboom! And it says, everybody feared the Lord and they feared Samuel. God also sent great thunder and lightning and smoke and other things at Mount Sinai when they saw the mountain trembling with this earthquake and there was, there was thick smoke and angels flying back and forth and there was lightning and it says thunder and the people at the base of the mountain were all trembling. And they said, Moses, tell God to stop. We don't want to hear. They didn't want to hear the thunder as well as these other things. Job 26.14 says how small a whisper we hear of him, but who can understand the thunder of his power? Job 37.4 and 5, he thunders with his majestic voice. God thunders marvelously with his voice. Job forty verse nine, can you thunder with a voice like his? Could you? No. When God speaks, it's louder than natural thunder. Psalm 81.7 says something interesting. God says, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. Isaiah 29 6 issues a prophecy. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. We've seen that predicted in the book of Revelation that during the great tribulation, God will unleash the forces of nature. There'll be plague upon plague upon plague, earthquake, lightning, thunder. And people will panic, wondering what is happening, but they do not repent. Remember last week's message, and they did not repent. Psalm 29.3, the God of glory thunders. The Bible records also spiritual thunder through people that spoke. I imagine some of those prophets like John the Baptist, when he spoke, I imagine people got real quiet and listened I imagine it was like that with Elijah. Often, the thundering of a person's authority is all the more obvious because he is normally a very quiet and meek person. Take Moses. Here's an interesting verse. It says Moses was the meekest person in the world. He wasn't like in the Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston, you know, Mr. Viral person, everybody would be afraid. No, he was kind of like Mr. Milktoast. But there were times when Moses spoke on behalf of God and he thundered. And they realized that isn't his normal personality. And of course, the most obvious example was the Lord Jesus. Remember, he said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, for I am meek and gentle of heart. And praise God, he is meek and gentle and tender, but... There were times Jesus thundered. And even those hardened Pharisees were terrified. Just imagine in Matthew 23 when Jesus seven times pronounced a curse upon them and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And it wasn't in a low voice. He probably looked at them with a face of anger. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven thunders. I would have been afraid to hear Jesus thunder with authority. You'd want to run for cover. Some preachers can really thunder. I can think of three or four that can put the fear of God into me. Anytime I hear them, Matt, you know one of them from northern New Jersey, Albert Martin, John Gerstner. We had Richard Owen Roberts preach here. He really thundered, and I can think of only one or two others like that, with God-given authority. But for every true thundering preacher, there are false preachers. Oh, you've heard them, they can shout and scream, that's false thunder. Or like Shakespeare said, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But listen, whenever God thunders through one of his preachers, And through his holy word. We're only echoing what's in the word of God. Know the difference between true thunder and false thunder. Get back to the text here. It says, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John was about to write it down, but then a voice from heaven, probably an angel, says, nope, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them down. So we don't know what the thunders said. It's like in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 12, where Daniel got vision after vision. Many of them he was told to write down. We have them in the book of Daniel. But in other ones, the angel said, seal that up. And you remember the scroll that had the seven seals? Nobody could open it up. And so now God says to Daniel, this prophecy is just for you. Don't write it down in the book of Revelation. Seal it up. I wonder what he thought. Well, why did you tell me if I'm not supposed to tell others? Because it's a secret just for you, John. It's like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He talked about that he went up to heaven and saw and heard things that it's not lawful for him to tell. What did he see? What did he hear? He went up to heaven just like John and Daniel and Ezekiel and other ones And they recorded some things that they saw and heard and felt, but not all. And Paul says, I can't tell you any of that, except it was things that was not lawful for me to tell. And if people had gone to him and said, Paul, what was it? He would have probably said, can't tell you. Probably similar happened to others that went to heaven and came back, like Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus died, Jesus raised him. Where was his soul between his death and his resurrection? He was a believer, His soul was in heaven, he came back, and he would probably remember that, but if I had met him, I'd said, "Lazarus, you went and came, what's it look like? You saw God?" He would probably would have said, "I can't tell you, except it's good." He couldn't describe it. And so John was told, "No, seal it up and don't tell people what you heard from the seven thunders. The prophets were told what to write down and were told what not to write down. Next, verses five and six, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven, the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Notice that the angel swears. and Elsewhere in the Bible, we find godly Christians swearing an oath or taking a vow. And on at least three occasions, God himself swears. It says in the book of Hebrews, since he could swear by no higher, God swore by himself. I only mention this in passing because there are some Christians that think Christians should never swear. And swear doesn't mean cuss, it means to take an oath or a vow. And they say we should never take an oath or a vow And they quote the verses. It says, let your yea be yea. Yes, but God himself swears and the holy angel does. So there is a legitimate place for valid biblical oaths and vows. If you want to know more, we have a handout in the lobby. Notice also the text says that God made everything. He created heaven, things on earth, even in the things in this sea. As it says in Colossians 1, he made everything visible and invisible. You know, I've been meditating upon one aspect of God's creation recently, and it keeps coming back to my mind. God made everything that's visible and invisible. Now, that also includes the realm of the supernatural, like the angels and so forth, and heaven. But God created things that we can't see. There are wavelengths of light that we cannot see with our natural eyes. Not only that... vast majority of the macrocosm out there we don't see even with the greatest telescopes it's not infinite but it's far beyond the reach of what we can see god sees it now turn that microscope around turn the telescope around make it a microscope and try looking into the microcosmos what's that again i ask kyle Go down small, small, small into the molecules, into the atoms, into the subatomic particles. There's a universe even in one drop of water. We don't normally see that, and it's all around us. There's a a multitude of universes around here. God sees it, and he made it. How great thou art. Just ponder that and meditate upon that. God sees everything he has created, everything tiny, everything massive, from the microcosmos to the macrocosmos. Okay, then the angel says, there should be delay no longer. Now, the old King James Version and one or two others translate that, this as, the time will be no more, and people say, that's right, we step out of time and into eternity. Not quite. It's best translated, let there be no more Delay. We are, in one sense, bound by time. God is not. This is deep. God fills all time and he is outside of all time. He is past, present, and future. He is in eternity. The analogy I use is take a cup and go and drop it deep into the ocean. The water is in the cup and the cup is in the ocean. God is in time and he's infinitely outside of time. We will never be infinitely outside of time we will never be eternal in that sense we will always go through chronological time infinitely into the future so it says here there will be no more delay as if God says time's up closing time C.S. Lewis said one day God will come down with a big set of keys from heaven and say gentlemen it's closing time God's alarm clock will go off. So what we see in the book of Revelation predicted here is the time will come on God's calendar down to the very second. God says, now this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And the second coming is just about to happen. Time will be up. No more time for salvation. Time for every predestined event in the scroll will come to pass, even including the little book, things predicted by the seven thunders. But this... Same principle happens in history. You see, this is the culmination of history when God says, I've had enough of their sin. My patience is at an end. Time is up. That happens in the life of each individual, even if they don't live to see the great tribulation. What am I saying? God has allotted to every one of us just a certain amount of time in this life. He has set the calendar and the alarm clock for our birthday and our death day. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it will. How come we haven't died yet? We keep seeing this in the book of Revelation. God is giving us time to repent. And God gives individuals time to repent only so long. And then he says, time's up. Death angel comes, a person dies. Remember a couple years ago I preached that message, Your Last Warning, you remember? Taken from Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. He had his last warning. He didn't take it, saw the handwriting on the wall. He died that very night. God gives everybody a last warning. And then time is up. No more delay. And they die. And if they die lost, they will face God at judgment day. So it says here, There will be no more delay. The things that have been predestined will now come to pass very quickly. What things? Verse 7. In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. In other words, what God predestined in eternity and predicted through the prophets will come to pass exactly as God planned it. He calls it a mystery, and the Bible is a mystery that is something that was previously not known that is now being gradually revealed, and God doesn't reveal everything all at once, and there's some things he never reveals. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to the Lord our God, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children, that we may obey all the words of this law. Now, that principle also applies to the Bible. God gradually revealed the Bible. It didn't come about all at once like the Mormons say the Book of Mormon came about or the Muslims say the the Koran. No, God stretched it out over several centuries and then it was completed with the Book of Revelation. But something else. That's progressive revelation. There's also progressive illumination to us as we read it. Have you not noticed that when you read you always see something you had never seen before? Even if you've been a Christian 50 or 60 years, you're always going to see something new. God is still showing you new things, so keep reading it. Read it all the way through. John Robinson, who was the pastor of the Pilgrim Fathers that came over here and started a colony, said this. I truly believe God has yet more light to break forth from his word. That's interesting. Over the centuries, scholars and preachers and just average average, everyday Christians have been reading the Bible and God is still bringing new things to pass that they had not seen before. Back to the text, verse 8 to 10 now. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth, So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. John, eat the little book. Now, obviously not literally eating something with paper and ink on it, but eat it. Ezekiel was told to do this in chapter 3, and he says, I did eat it. And just like John, he says, it's sweet in my mouth, but it's like a little child. Mommy, my tummy hurts. He it was bitter in his stomach. Have you ever eaten something like that? that Maybe your doctor says, don't eat that, and you, you eat it anyway, and it tastes so good, and you know what's going to happen. You're going to get an upset stomach, and you say, honey, bring me the tums, or whatever. It just, but you say, I'm not supposed to eat that anymore. Some of you all remember that old com- commercial, you remember, man? Gorging himself with pizza, and afterwards he says, "I can't believe I ate the whole thing." And he said, "Oh, give me some Alka-Seltzer." Well, that's what John experiences here. He takes the little book that contains Revelations, and he says, "Oh, this is sweet." But then, when it goes down he begins to digest it, it becomes bitter. He sees the implications of what was predicted. The Word of God is sweeter than honey, but It goes deep into our hearts and becomes better. We'll pick that up in the lesson to follow. Chapter concludes verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, go down, go back to earth and preach and write. What I tell you to write and don't write down what I told you not to write. Some are thinking that when it says you have to prophesy again... John would go back and then write the Gospel of John, perhaps. John was a disciple. He was an apostle, and he was a prophet. He says, you will prophesy again. Now, we don't have apostles or prophets today. We have missionaries and preachers, but not apostles and prophets. But we do have disciples today. And if you're a Christian, this goes to you. You are a disciple. You go and tell other people God's word. Well, that's a summary of this chapter, so let's get those three lessons that are applicable to us. Number one, God's word is both bitter and sweet. You see, he was to read and eat this word, this message from God, and he says, it was sweet like honey in my mouth, but it was bitter in my stomach. The Bible is like that, and God tells us to eat it, to believe it, and it's sweet, it's, it's delicious, it's comforting. Think of verses that you turn to, like in the Psalms, or, or John 14, my peace I give to you. These wonderful verses that are sweet, but then the Bible's also bitter. Gives us a stomachache. It convicts us. You say it was sweet, and then you read other parts of the Bible, it's bitter, it hits your conscience, it punches you in the gut it challenges you makes you uneasy why because god's word is holy and it, it go you see it's one thing when it goes in your mouth when it goes in your stomach you can get a stomach ache and god's word sometimes gives us a spiritual stomach ache it's called conviction of sin if you ever had such a bad stomach ache there's only one thing you can do and you know what that is you go and vomit Ooh. So what God says, sometimes I'm going to give you his word to force us to vomit out sin. And that's called confession and repentance. But it's sometimes sweet in our mouths. The Bible is compared to honey. Psalm 119, 103. 1 Peter 2, 2 compares it to milk. Matthew 4, 4 says it's like bread. 1 Corinthians three twelve it's like meat. Several times in the Bible it says that a new Christian needs milk because he's like a little baby. In 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn babes, earnestly desire the milk of God's word. And, you know, that's what a baby... You know, you don't give a baby a Big Mac and small fries it can't digest it. You give them baby food, pablum, that's very soft and it goes down easy. In some parts of the word of God are like that. Like honey, just very soft and sweet and goes down easy but then Hebrews 5 rebukes certain Christians and says, by this time you should have outgrown that and sink your teeth into meat. But he says you're not ready for that. And that's a rebuke that goes out to some Christians. They just want the sweet but not the bitter. They want the baby food that's smooth, but they don't want the hard parts of God's word that you have to chew on. Steve like like beef jerky. You ever chew that? I love beef jerky. I used to make my own beef jerky in the oven. You chew it and chew it and chew it in some parts of the word of God or you have to chew, chew, chew. But then there are parts of God's word that are both sweet and bitter, that are both smooth like baby food and tough like jerky. Take the Gospel of John. It was Augustine that said, um, Gos- John's gospel on the surface seems very simple, but you look at it, It's deeper and deeper the more you look at it. And he said this, interesting picture. He said, it's like a shallow pool that a little toddler can wade through, but it's also so deep that an elephant can swim in it and not touch bottom. And yet it's the same book. John was told to eat the little book, and God tells us to eat the Bible, to put it in our mouths and to chew it over, to digest it. Because it's good for you. How many of you mothers say to your children, eat that? And they say, I don't want it. You'll eat it. If you know it's good for you, you'll eat it and it's good for you. That's what my mother used to say to me. You'll eat it and you'll like it. Yes, ma'am. That's what God says to us. The head, as it were, is the mouth of the soul. What's the stomach of the soul? Our heart. It goes into the mouth with our understanding and goes into our heart to be digested and then to our hands to put it into practice. John was told to read to eat all of this little book and God wants us to read read all of the Bible and not just the sweet parts. You know those little daily devotionals that give you a sweet little Bible verse that never challenges anybody. Read the whole counsel of God. Read the whole Bible starting on page 1. Jeremiah did, Jeremiah 15, 16. He says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Before we move on to the next lesson, life itself can also be both bitter and sweet. Am I right? It can be bitter sweet. There's an old proverb, you have to take the bitter with the sweet. And we can think back that there are times that were sweet as honey. You're on top of the mountain. Everything is wonderful. You're close to Jesus. And within 24 hours, you're in the valley in the dark clouds. And it's bitter time and depression or financial woes or marital problems. But brethren, God will help you through the bitter times as well as the sweet times. And then one day when you get to heaven, everything in heaven is sweet. No bitterness. In contrast with hell, where nothing is sweet and everything is bitter. That's our first lesson. Second lesson. Like John, we must tell some things and not others. Verse 4, seal it up. John, don't write it down. Don't tell anybody when you go back to earth. What the angel said to Daniel. What God said to Paul. And like Lazarus, couldn't speak about this. By the way, also, John the Apostle, in an interesting way, look at the end of John's gospel. How does it end? He says, and many other things did Jesus do which are not recorded in this book. But of course, if they were all written down, the world couldn't contain them. What things, John? He was among the inner three of the apostles. He heard everything Jesus said. And he only wrote down some of it as if to say, I'm going to tell you what God told me to write down and zip it on things that he's told me not to write down. I've always wondered, what are the other things Jesus said and did? We'll find out when we get to heaven. So the point is, we too must tell some things to others, but there's some things we don't tell to other people. This applies in a variety of ways. For example, learn to keep secrets and don't divulge confidences. You know, doctors, lawyers, psychologists have to take oaths and they're legally licensed not to divulge certain things that are told them in confidence. Did you know a lawyer and a doctor cannot be subpoenaed and put on the the witness stand to say certain things that were told him only in confidence? We need to keep secrets. The book of Proverbs warns about people that don't keep secrets. They're gossips. There are also certain secrets between husbands and wives that should not be told to anybody else. And sometimes... Even the husband or a wife cannot tell their spouse. If that man or that woman is a doctor or a lawyer, cannot tell the spouse about a client or a patient. And sometimes there are secrets deep within a heart of our spouse. Going back years, maybe sins that they were ashamed of, that maybe they shouldn't tell their spouse. You see, this is applicable. What if you were married to someone... And you know that person has some secret, some information that he or she has not told you. Don't try. And don't try to weasel it out. Otherwise, you know who you're imitating? Delilah. You remember? It says she kept harassing Samson. Tell me the secret of your great strength. And finally he gave him. And she says, woman, I can't take this anymore, this nagging Don't nag a secret out of your husband or your wife. Realize that they should keep certain things secret. And some things are so personal, you should not tell anybody. Not just secrets that somebody has confided in you, but certain sins should not be confessed openly. I've heard about times of revival where people... Stand up and confess certain sins. There was a revival 25 years ago up at Wheaton College and students were standing up confessing all sorts of things. And many of them later were ashamed. You mean I said that in public? People are going to keep a distance from me. Certain sins should not be confessed publicly. Certain things we need to keep to ourselves. And there's another thing. I ask people when have you felt closest to God? But sometimes... Each Christian has a very intimate communion with Christ that is so holy he shouldn't tell anybody about it. Any more than a husband should tell other people about intimacy with his wife. Say, no, that's not for you to know. In other words, there are some things we, sh- we should tell others and other things we should keep to ourselves. And what's the ultimate expression of this? God himself. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, secret things belong to the Lord our God. Things that are revealed belong to us. God doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't tell us all about how he created things out of nothing. There's There's so little things God has told us. There's so much more he has not told us. This isn't in my notes, but I'll go and strike while the iron's hot. There are many things God has not told us, why he's doing certain things in our life. That's one of the messages of the book of Job. Job, why am I suffering? I am in such pain. And his so-called friend says, because there's sin in your life. No, it wasn't that you're wrong. And he kept saying, God, why is this happening? And God didn't tell him. And if that's the secret of the book of Job, at the end, Job says, I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm just going to trust you, Lord, because you're sovereign. He knew enough from God to trust him, but to stop asking questions Think about that when you go through a severe trial. You can search the scripture, apply certain Bible verses and principles, and that will help you along. But God will not answer all of your questions. Just trust him. And of course, speaking as a theologian, I know right now there are a lot of things God has not told us about the final answer to the Trinity, deity of Christ, many other things. He's told us enough to just for us to just trust him. So we need to keep quiet about certain things like God does. But on the other hand, look at verse 11. John, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and so forth. So he was told, don't say and write certain things, but then tell other things to people. How does that apply to us? There are certain things we are not to tell other people, but there are certain things we should, such as the gospel. Now, let me also add this. Again, not in my notes. We're to tell them the gospel. A preacher is to preach the whole counsel of God to the people of God, but when we share the gospel, we don't have to tell them certain other things. Keep it basic to the gospel. We don't have to tell them about the seven thunders or predestination. They're likely to be confused by that. Tell them the things they need to hear. Also, parents, teach your children the Bible. And also be very open, honest with your spouses and with your parents and never lie. So know when to speak and not to speak and have the wisdom to know the difference. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there is a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Our third and last lesson is this. Listen to God's thunder such as when God sends an echo of his thunder in nature. You've all heard thunder. Whenever you hear thunder, remember that's a reminder of God. He's trying to get your attention. I've told you this story about a, a fellow that was with me when I got saved. And it was almost 50 years ago. He was in the front seat of a, of a 1959 uh, Chevrolet, and, and I got saved there. A few months later, this friend and I was standing outside of a church and I was witnessing to him. He wasn't a Christian. He, says, he said, Kurt, I don't know if I really believe all this. Maybe it's good for you, but I don't even know if there is a God. Guess what? Two seconds later. Kaboom! Lightning struck nearby and thunder shook. And you know what this fellow did? He says, I'm sorry, God, you are there. He said, oh, Kurt, this is dangerous. Whenever God sends thunder... Earthquake, hurricanes, or tragedies in our life, such as COVID, God's trying to get our attention. Listen to the thunder of God. Listen to God's thunder in the word of God. It says in the book of Isaiah, I dwell in a high and holy place, and with him that is of a humble heart, quote, that trembles at my word god thunders through his word in the sweet and in the bitter it gives light like lightning it gives power like thunder in its supernatural thunder but as you listen to the thunder of god's word also listen to the still small voice of the holy spirit whispering through his word. Let us pray. Lord, as we've looked at this mysterious chapter, give us ears to hear your thunder in nature and through your word and also the whisper of your spirit. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.